Life Audio. Faith Over Fear is brought to you by Life Audio and is part of our Faith Toolkit series. For more inspirational, faith-affirming podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hello, welcome to the Faith Over Fear podcast, where we systematically attack our most pervasive fears with truth, because life is too short for any of us to live enslaved. We are passionate about helping God's children discover, embrace, experience, and share God's freedom. We would love to connect with you online. Just visit our show notes to learn how to connect with us. I'm Jennifer Slattery. We've probably all experienced times where we were crying out to God for answers, for help, only to receive divine silence. That can be such an unsettling and frightening place, because just as everything feels more manageable when we know God is with us and guiding us, everything feels harder and more painful when we feel as if we're alone. We might assume the silence indicates that God is angry with us and has abandoned us, and therefore that we must navigate this harsh and confusing world alone. Those of us with soul wounds and who carry shame might view God's silence as confirmation of inner lies, those false identities that tell us we're worthless, unlovable, or disposable. This, in turn, can cause us to protect ourselves against God instead of turning to Him and waiting for Him. So what do we do in those seasons? How can we hold tight to faith and hope when it feels as if God is no longer holding on to us? Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Well, first we trace our emotions out. We follow the threads to the statements our feelings are making. Let me explain using a recent conversation as an example. The other day I was speaking with a woman who feels like she's been in a spiritual desert, abandoned by God for almost a decade. Although she isn't currently living in sin and has repented, turned from her sins from the past, she's convinced God is angry with her. In essence, that she has outsinned his grace. Now, let's evaluate my friend's lie in consideration of truth. She believed God had distanced himself, abandoned her because of her sin. Well, for that to be true, God's love would have to be conditional. Plus, it would mean that Christ's grace wasn't enough, that Christ's death on the cross lacked power to save her. 
But that's not the God of the Bible. 1 John 1, 9 states, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I discussed this verse in depth in the April 5th episode of Your Daily Bible Verse podcast, which I co-host with Grace Fox. If you struggle with accepting God's grace, I encourage you to take a listen. In the meantime, I'll share a bit of what I shared there. 1 John 1, 9 promises the moment we confess our sins to God, and every time we do so, we receive his forgiveness and soul-deep purification. Every sin, the big and the small. And notice the author's phrase regarding God being faithful and just. God is faithful to his promise, reiterated throughout the Gospels, to grant us forgiveness through the death and resurrection of his Son. In other words, were he not to forgive us, he wouldn't be faithful. He would be breaking his own promise. Second, John says his forgiveness is just, which also points back to Christ's death on the cross, the just payment for your sins and mine and the sins of all the world. Therefore, it would not be just for God to demand payment from you and I, thereby withholding forgiveness. Therefore, it would not be just for God to demand payment from me and you, thereby withholding forgiveness for something that Christ already paid for. That would be like your father or husband writing a check for your speeding ticket, the city accepting his payment, then issuing you another ticket for the same infraction and the same amount. That wouldn't be just. And so that wouldn't be God because he is perfectly just always. And Jesus didn't just pay one of our tickets or even five. He basically issued a blank check to cover them all the sins we've already committed, and all those sins that we'll commit in the future. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 makes a similar promise. It states, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. In other words, his faithfulness isn't dependent on ours. That is such a comforting truth because if his faithfulness was dependent on ours, we would all be in a big mess. And if that were true, if God's faithfulness towards humanity depended on mankind's faithfulness to him, he would have given up on us long ago, certainly long before Jesus chose to die on the cross. Now, that doesn't mean he ignores or condones sin, but it does mean that he forgives us for it because, as Jesus stated in John chapter 3, he didn't come to condemn the world, but rather to save it. That's his heart always, to seek and to save what is lost, to bridge the gap between God and man, and to bring you and I a deeply fulfilling beyond our expectations life. This is the God we continually see in scripture. Throughout the centuries, he has displayed long-suffering love again and again, despite his children's blatant and persistent sin. One of my favorite examples comes from Isaiah chapter 30, especially considering the context in which God spoke. So this was a dark time in the nation's history during which the people rebelled against him, engaged in idol worship and all sorts of wicked behavior, and when the situation became challenging, turned to everyone but God for help. And yet, God continued to pursue them despite their blatant, unrepentant sin, urging them to rest in him. In verse 18, he said, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. And then adding one of my favorite promises in scripture, quote, Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, unquote. And in John chapter 10, verses 3 to 5, Jesus said, speaking about all who would follow him in faith, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now, this passage tells us two things. First, God wants to and does guide us, and he will make it clear when we're heading in the wrong direction. I remind myself of that whenever I feel as if God isn't answering my prayers or giving me guidance. He lets me know when I need to know where I need to go and when I'm venturing into dangerous territory. Sometimes this comes through a clear thought or conviction where we know immediately that we are in sin or heading the wrong way. Other times we'll just feel unsettled, maybe even feel a desire to leave the situation. Years ago, my family and I moved from Southern California to Bossier City, Louisiana, so that my husband could work with a new company. Initially, the company put us up in a hotel to give us time to get settled and to find a home. You may enjoy house shopping, but I find it exhausting and overwhelming, especially as was the case with Bossier City, when there are a large number of homes on the market. I think I'm afraid if we choose one house that we'll miss out on another potentially better one. And so I want to see them all but soon they all sort of blend together. Now, I don't remember how many houses we looked at except to say a lot. Plus, per the terms of my husband's relocation agreement, we are on a time crunch. And so when we got to 103 Gloucester, I was ready to be done. Apparently, I toured the house much slower than my daughter and husband because when I turned the corner to leave the kitchen, I found them both waiting for me in the living room with hope-filled eyes. Can we buy it, Mama? My daughter asked, and she was bouncing up and down, her, her hands clenched in front of her. Daddy likes it, and he says, if you do too, then we can buy it. Immediately, a wave of discomfort swept through me as I looked from her to my husband, then back to her again. And I should have taken that as an invitation to pause and to pray, to give God time to speak. But I didn't because by that point, I just wanted to be done. Plus, as I said, my family appeared so hopeful and I didn't want to disappoint them. And so I ignored God's nudge and I told myself I was being silly. I, I mean, we could easily afford the house after all, and it was a nice home, but our God is persistent. And so a few days later, while we were shopping for household items, our cart loaded with things like shower curtains and matching soap dispensers. I felt another wave of discomfort, but I kept this to myself. I I wrestled with myself until after we had checked out. I didn't tell my husband about my uneasiness until we were headed back to our car with our newly purchased items. And he paused mid-step and turned to face me. Do you want us to take all this back? He asked. And I was torn. I wanted to obey God, but the house was beautiful. And frankly, I didn't want to believe God was telling us no. And so I once again suppressed that nudge, that inner discomfort, forgetting all about it until... Six months later, my husband quit his job, and we found ourselves scrambling to sell. We ended up losing a lot of money on that house. That was an expensive lesson, one I have reflected on numerous times since. Obviously, I wish I had responded to those nudges from God with obedience. But through that situation, God also showed me when I mess up, when we mess up, there's always grace. Yes, we experienced significant loss, and things were hard and discouraging for a while. But by God's grace, we bounced back. Because God isn't punitive. He's not like people who try to get back at us through the silent treatment, and he doesn't receive joy from punishing us or inflicting pain. Why would a God who died to draw us close when we are at our worst turn his back on us now? He wouldn't. He loves us deeply, and he wants what's best for us. 
And he wants to draw us into a deep, dependent, and trusting relationship with him. That's his heart always, that we seek him, that we yield to him, and live deeply and vitally connected to him. Sometimes divine silence means we're exactly where he wants us to be. In her Voice of God Bible study, Priscilla Shire makes an analogy between God's directives to his children and a car's GPS. Have you ever driven down a long stretch of highway for, say, 200 miles? If so, and if you were using your GPS, I imagine it stayed silent, right? But were you to get off on a wrong exit, your GPS would immediately start rerouting to get you back on the right road. Often when we don't hear God, it's easy to blame ourselves, like I said, to think that we're in sin or that he's punishing us. But that's one of the reasons I like the book of Job. So the Bible introduces Job as someone who is blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He was the type of man everyone would expect God to bless, right? And certainly someone God would respond to during times of trouble. And Job experienced a ton of trouble. He lost almost everything, and he cried out to God for answers. But God didn't respond until chapter 38. While Scripture doesn't state how long Job suffered before hearing from God, we know it was long enough for his friends to learn about all that had happened, to make a plan, and to travel to him, each from their respective homes. And then once there, Job 2 verse 13 says, once they arrived, they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And then another 36 chapters of divine silence followed. And when God did speak, he never answered Job's question. Expanding on this, David Guzik from the Enduring Word states, speaking of Job and his friends, quote, We shouldn't think that God expected them to know what they could not know. Rather, he expected them to appreciate that sometimes there were aspects of the matter known to God, but hidden to man. And these aspects made sense of what seemed to make no sense, end quote. Now, we don't know what Job most needed to hear when he most needed to hear it, but God did. And when we read the full account, we realize that what Job needed most was an encounter with God himself. As David Guzik states, quote, Job's greatest agony was that he felt God had abandoned him, and now he knew he was not abandoned, end quote. When our world feels out of control, it's easy to feel that way. And that's why I spent so much time discussing God's response to our sin, our weakness, and our doubts, so that hopefully in those divinely silent moments, we can wait with endurance, with hope, anchored in grace, and the deep assurance that our God is with us, will never leave us, and will never let us go. The more we know God's character and remind ourselves of who he is, the more comfortable we will be with his silence. This is one reason periods of silence can actually deepen our faith because it can reveal doubt that God wants to conquer with truth. When God reveals himself, his will, or his heart after a silent period, we tend to pay attention. His words gain impact and reach a deeper place within us. In his book, Why is God Silent?, author James Long wrote, quote, When God's voice seems unclear for whatever reason, we can cover up the silence and fill in the blanks for him, or we can listen carefully for what he may be trying to teach us through the quiet. And he added a bit later, quote, when God chooses to speak, it is purposeful. Does it not follow that when he chooses to remain silent, it is just as purposeful? End quote. Therefore, when God is silent, we trust, we hold tight to what is true, and we wait with alert obedience, even when he answers questions we're not asking. 
Now, forgive me if I shared this previously, but years ago, as I was nearing the end of Bible college, I felt a sense, I don't know, discontentment. I had an idea in my brain of how God would use my degree and me, and that became my focus. And so I began sending out resumes and attending interviews, hoping when the right job popped up, God would make it clear that that was the one for me. During this season, I prayed, my husband prayed, we prayed together a lot. Frustrated, I asked a godly friend to coffee, and I wanted her advice, but I also, I think I wanted to sort through my thoughts and my feelings, and I shared my dilemma with her, and I shared my heart, and she looked at me for a long moment and then asked, well, then what is he telling you? I thought about that for a moment, reflecting upon my morning Bible reading times, and I answered, I don't know, and I was a bit exasperated, and, and I said, all I hear, and by hear I meant read, is to grow in character. Well, she offered a kind smile, and she said, well, then that's what you should focus on. In other words, I needed to spend less time obsessing over what God wasn't saying, and I needed to start applying what he was. And so that's what I did. And you know what? He never answered my questions regarding what job to take because that wasn't the direction he was leading me. He wanted me to continue with what I was doing, leading Holy Love Ministries and writing. What's more, I came to realize the deep work God was doing within me during that time. By directing me to work on me, he was equipping me for challenges and opportunities I faced later. And thankfully, because of the wise words of my friend, I was able to cooperate with his growth plan. I've also learned when I feel like God isn't giving me answers regarding what's ahead, I need to do what he told me last. I need to faithfully continue until he clearly tells me to do otherwise. And this was especially important in my journey to publication. I knew God called me to write. I could remember the moment I felt certain of his call and also numerous confirmations that he had provided along the way. But as I continued pounding away at my keyboard month after month and year after year with nothing but kindly worded rejection letters to show for it, I began to doubt that initial call. And I had to remind myself of who God was and what he had said. I had to resist the urge to justify those God moments away. That's so easy to do. We might hear a word from God, a word that penetrates deep into our souls, only to question its validity when the blessings don't come according to our timetable or as easily as we had expected. Years ago, back when I was an unpublished writer, I formed a critique partnership with another aspiring writer. She was clearly gifted, but like me, she had a lot to learn. We were both such newbies. We are too new to realize how much we still had to learn. Well, one night she called me. She was upset because she had received some pretty tough feedback from another critique partner. And after venting for a bit, she said, I know I'm going to be a published writer. It's just a matter of time. To which I replied, hold tight to that. Because I believed, and she did as well, that this was God's encouragement to her to keep pressing on. Sadly, she quit less than a year later. And while obviously only she and God know what occurred within her internally, it seemed like she let her doubts, insecurities, and fears speak louder and drowned out God's voice. Our thoughts, anxiety, stress, and busyness can make it challenging to hear God. And so can our expectations. So consider the disciples and their confusion regarding Christ's death. He told them quite clearly on at least three occasions that he was going to die. The first occurred in Matthew 16. Now, this was shortly after Peter had declared in verse 16 that Jesus was the Christ, 
the Son of God. And we can assume, based on the common views at that time, that his idea of how the Messiah would act and what he would accomplish was far different than what Jesus planned. Most, if not all Jews, expected a strong, charismatic political leader, one who would act much like ancient Israel's second king, David, someone who would overthrow the Roman government and restore Israel to its quote-unquote golden years. They were not expecting, or perhaps didn't want to consider, the suffering servant depicted in Isaiah 53, the one acquainted with sorrow, who would be pierced for our transgressions and led like a lamb to the slaughter. Therefore, Jesus's words predicting his upcoming death made no sense to the disciples, nor did they have the courage to ask him what he meant, probably because they didn't want to know. And we can do that too, can't we? Close our ears to something unpleasant or unsettling, convincing ourselves that we didn't really hear God. That seems to be how the disciples responded, because despite Jesus's clear and repeated predictions, they were completely sideswiped upon his death. But here again, we see God's grace. After his resurrection, not once did Jesus say, y'all, I told you this would happen. Were you not listening? No. He simply showed them his resurrected self and welcomed them once again into relationship. As always, he proved himself faithful, and he took the initiative to seek them out. Had they set aside their expectations or questioned them when Christ's words contradicted their preconceived assumptions, they probably would have experienced more peace in those long, painful three days between his death and resurrection. Their world probably would have felt less out of control. But I imagine God used that experience to deepen their faith, to increase their spiritual discernment so that they would hear him better the next time and then the time after that and the time after that, because that's what this faith journey is all about. We're in the process of growing more alert to God's voice, to his leading, and more alert to the sin that dulls our hearing and distances us from God. I maybe should have touched on this point earlier, but if we are engaged in ongoing sin, it will be challenging to hear God, in part because we won't want to. Remember when I talked about God being persistent and faithful to let us know when we're heading in the wrong direction? We'll be like, um, God, should I take this job? And he's like, uh, let's talk about your anger. An hour later, you ask him how to handle a challenging situation. He's like, um, yeah, remember that anger thing? We need to discuss that. Eventually, we tend to respond in one of two ways. If we don't want to deal with our sin, we won't want to hear about it either. So we'll close our ears and distance ourselves from God. Or we'll finally wise up, repent, and experience restored intimacy with our Father along with increased guidance. The more we respond obediently when we do hear God, the better we'll be able to hear his voice in the future. Therefore, if we're struggling to hear him, we need to ask ourselves, am I living in continual and deliberate sin? Has God been telling me to do something or to stop doing something? And have I shut his voice down? If so, confess this to God and repent, which means to change your behavior. Knowing the moment you do, as 1 John 1, 9 promises, he will forgive you and purify your heart. We tend to hear God best when our hearts are pure and when we pursue him when we want him even more than his answers or guidance. A great example comes from Acts 13. We read, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. That was Paul's official call, the launch of his ministry. And the call came while he and the others were praising God. That's often when I hear God too, through scripture, obviously, which I do need to add. If you really want to hear from God, you need to read the words he's already given you in the Bible. That's where I hear him most and clearest when I'm reading my Bible. And I also tend to hear him when I'm engaged in worship because that's when my heart is most open and ready to receive. I don't know which of those points really resonated with you. If you just maybe are in a season of silence and need to keep moving forward and trust that God is with you. I don't know if he convicted you of something that you need to turn from. I don't know if you maybe need to quiet some of your thoughts down, some of your busyness down to give him room to speak. But I do know that God loves you and that he wants you to hear him. He wants you to receive his guidance, because that is the type of father he is. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness and just all of the ways you pursue us and you lead and guide us and protect us. Help us to be more alert to your guidance. Help us to recognize your voice when you speak and give us the courage and the strength to surrender and to yield however you lead us, knowing that you will always lead us towards what is best. We thank you for that. We thank you for your son because it's through his death and resurrection that we can even have this conversation with you. And we praise you for that. In the name of your son, our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening, for pursuing God each day and growing in in your relationship with him, your ability to understand him, to know his will and to recognize his voice. If you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. Then you won't miss a single episode and make sure to rate it. That encourages our team and it helps others to find it as well. And share it on social media that somebody else can be encouraged and draw closer to Christ. Until next time, may you live as one who truly has been set free. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Faith Over Fear, a production of Life Audio and the Salem Web Network. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we'd love for you to head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. To learn more about Jennifer Slattery or to check out any of the resources she mentioned in this episode, just head over to her website, jenniferslatterylivesoutloud.com, or check out our show notes. This episode was produced by Kelly Givens and edited by Stephen Sanders. A special thanks to our executive producer, Stephen McGarvey. For more Faith Toolkit podcasts like this, Just head over to lifeaudio.com. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.